the National Archives podcast series, King John and Magna Carta. Any discussion of John, Magna Carta or the events of his reign must begin with a look at his family background. John was a member of the Plantagenet or Angevin Comital dynasty, who according to St. Bernard, from the devil they came and to the devil they will return. Popular gossips suggested that the family was descended from Satan's daughter, Melusine. But in reality, the family originated from Anjou, a small county which bordered Brittany and Poitou, where a series of advantageous marriages had expanded their continental dominions until, in 1154, John's father, Henry II, had secured the greatest prize of all, the English throne. Henry II and his sons had a reputation for being larger than life. Henry's relentless travels across his empire led to his being described as a human chariot. John of Salisbury, in his personal correspondence, referred to him as Proteus. Henry's temper was legendary. Once in Henry's presence, a courtier inadvertently praised his enemy, William the Lion of Scotland. Henry, in a fit of rage, fell screaming out of bed, tore up his coverlet, and threshed around the floor, cramming his mouth with the stuffing of his mattress. Gerald of Wales recalls that to be in his household was to know the fury of hell. His son Richard I was equally volatile. On one occasion, Richard believed that he had got the worst of a bargain. He flew into a blind rage like a wounded boar, and no one came near him. Richard was also extremely determined, and the contemporary story illustrates this perfectly. One day during the building of his beloved castle at Leon de Lee, the workmen were startled by a shower of blood. But Richard forced them on, and even if an angel had descended from heaven to urge his abandonment, he would have sworn at it. What of John's own reputation? Historians have generally seen John as a tyrannical ruler. J.R. Green, for example, in the late 19th century, believed that in his inner soul, John was the worst outcome of the Angevins. Popularly, John was seen as being, as being tyrannical, um, untrustworthy, and militarily incompetent. His reputation was heavily tarnished by two nicknames, Lackland, which was bestowed upon him by his father in the early 1170s when he was deciding on how he should divide his territories amongst his sons after his death, and John's other epithet of Soft Sword, so it was reported by the chronicler Gervais of Canterbury, which was acquired in 1200 because he decided to opt for peace rather than war with France. Indeed, many contemporary chroniclers were scathing about John. Roger of Wendover, a monk of St. Albans, writing in the 1220s, regales his readers with frequent anecdotes about John's character and conduct. It was alleged that John had threatened to slit the noses of papal servants, that he had crushed an archdeacon under a cope of lead, and that he once ordered a Jew from Bristol that he should have his teeth knocked out once a day, or once every day, until he revealed the whereabouts of his treasure. Chroniclers have also questioned John's morality, with tales of how he made free with the wives and daughters of his barons. But there's the most famous chronicler, Matthew Paris, who was the most scathing of all. Foul as it is, hell itself is defiled by the fouler presence of King John. Surprise recommendation. Um, I will return to the question of John's reputation at the end of this talk. So let's now look at how John actually secured the throne. On the 6th of April, 1199, Richard I died from a wound he received during the siege of Chalou in the Limousin without a direct heir. There were two competing candidates for the throne. The first was Arthur Brittany, who was the nearest male heir, but he was only a boy of 15. The other challenger was John, Count of Mortain and Lord of Ireland, who was Richard's younger brother, but an adult of 33 years. At this time, there was no clear consensus on primogeniture. Different inheritance customs were used in different, uh, across these continental and British possessions. So there was no clear consensus of who, of how to choose who would be king. 
Faced with a contested succession, it was accepted as heir by a sufficient number of influential nobles that counted. Brittany's nobility supported Arthur, but key barons and officials such as the Archbishop of Canterbury and William Marshall, the most famous and respected knight of his era, opted for John. Consequently, on the 25th of April 1199, John was invested as Duke of Normandy at Rouen. And on the 27th of May 1199, he was crowned king at Westminster Abbey. This next slide is a simplified family tree of the Angevin dynasty. John's mother was Ellen of Aquitaine, the heiress to the Duchy of Aquitaine and the former wife of Louis VII for France. In 1152, she, she had married Henry II. They had four sons, two of whom died before Henry II's death in 1189. Arthur was descended from Geoffrey, and John, as you can see, was a fourth and youngest son. The empire he succeeded to in 1199 was a lot more than just the English realm. He inherited an empire which stretched from the borders of Scotland to the Pyrenees. As well as being king in England and Wales, he was Lord of Ireland, Duke of Normandy, Duke of Aquitaine, Count of Anjou and Poitou, overlord of Brittany. He was king, but he was also a vassal of the King of France, Philip II. Another interesting aspect of the Angevin um, Empire was that many English barons still at this time had crossed Channel Estates, mostly based in Normandy. And now we have a, a map of the Angevin Empire in France at its full extent. During much of the later 12th century, the French Capetian monarchy was at its weakest. It could only effectively enforce its commands or collect taxes within the Ile de France, the small area which is in shade of pink on the map. Those yellow bits represent those counties which had normally owed allegiance to the French crown, but were able to defy its orders and would often act together collectively to maintain their independence. And the Angevin homeland is there, coming from the centre of France, and was the ancestral homeland on the Angevin dynasty. John's inheritance. The barons are allowed to run the border areas on the free reign. For example, the marshes of Wales, up in the north of Scotland, and north of the borders of Scotland, and sometimes on the, the borders of the Pyrenees. But the rest of his domain was ruled for officials removable at will. The king himself exercised general supervision, was attentive to detail. It was a very personal form of government. There was no single centralised administrative centre for the empire, but each province had its own administration run by an appointed official. Their titles varied, but it was, it was an appointed official by the crown. And across the, his domains, there were different laws and customs in each of his territories, which made ruling very, very difficult. But his instructions and orders were conveyed by the Minister of Ritz, which set out his orders and his instructions to his officials, whether they were prevots, sheriffs or vicomtes. And given the size of the Plantagenet domain, the royal household was peripatetic in nature, travelling around constantly enforcing the king's will and making sure that, it, that the locals knew what he was wished to, 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 to do. This is an example of John's great seal. On the left-hand side of the screen, you see a copy which is held by the British Library, that shows King John in majesty, seated enthroned in majesty. On the right-hand side is an image of a National Archive seal under the reference SC 13 slash H18, and it shows the reverse of that same seal, king on horseback in armour as a warrior. When John came to the throne, he faced a financial crisis. Firstly, is a depleted treasury. Henry II left a fairly sizable treasury to his son, Richard II, Richard I, but within 10 years, it had all, almost all dissipated away. And it dissipated on various things. Richard's crusade, for example, the sums on that were phenomenal. Um, a payment alone for 790 knights on 35 ships from the same port for one year cost £2,400, and that's just one section of his crusading costs. He ordered 50,000 horseshoes, 12,000 cured pigs for feeding his army. 
The amount of money spent on this was phenomenal. When Richard returned from crusade, he got himself captured in, in Austria, by Leopold of Austria. That cost us some money as well. A total of 100,000 marks, 66,000 pounds, or over 66,000 pounds. Three years, the royal family's entire revenue. Again, a sizable amount, and it was paid. While, while Richard was away on crusade and during his um, imprisonment, Philip of France attacked the Angevin Empire and conquered large swathes of it. The next eight years, he spent trying to conquer it all back. And he was successful, but the amount of money this involved, again, was substantial. And Richard was a bit of a builder. He liked building castles, palaces, and, mon and monastic houses. The Cistercian of Bonpoor, for example. And most, most happily for him, his castle at um, Chateau Galliard. There was also severe inflationary pressures at this time. England was undergoing an inflation crisis. Um, so again, the value of money was declining as the costs were increasing. Now this image we've got coming up next is an account for building work, which took place at Chateau Galliard and Tosny in 1198. And it's held in the National Archives and the Norman pipe rolls, which were transferred in 1204, 1203, 1204, and the collapse of the Norman um, regime. And that bit, uh, the, the highlighted text says, on works of the houses and stockades and ditches of, of, the, of the castle, and it carries on from there. In total, that payment alone cost around about 1,800 pounds, which is just a small amount. On that castle, he spent approximately 11,000 pounds, and at the same time, in all his castles in England, he spent just 7,000 pounds across his entire reign. So that was his favorite castle, and his, his main spur. So upon John's, upon John's accession, facing a number of challenges, how did he react? Well, firstly, he came to an agreement with Philip of France. On the 22nd of May, 1200, at Le Goulet in Poitou, came to an agreement with, with Louis, or with, with Philip. Neither side could face war, and peace was a better option. John won French recognition as Richard's heir, which was a key concession from the French. Arthur Brittany was to be his vassal, so the dukedom of Brittany was to be held from John as his vassal. But there was a downside. John confirmed the jurisdiction of Philip's court at Paris, and he acknowledges his vassal status by paying a relief of 20,000 marks. And for the first time, Jean-Jean's homage to the French monarch is not just notional, but this is real. And this does have implications later on, as you'll see during the course of the talk. And we have a copy of the treaty here at the National Archives. Um, unfortunately, here's a bit of damage, and you can see a few holes and a bit of varnish. But the text itself is very clear and very easy to read. And you should see a copy of it on the back of the room later on after the talk is finished. Longuelay marriage. John was originally married in 1189 to Isabella of Gloucester, the heiress to the earldom of Gloucester. The marriage was arranged by his father, Henry II. Um, it wasn't a particularly happy marriage. There was no children, and Isabella stayed in the, the background for the entire period of Richard's reign. So when John came to the throne, he decided to divorce her. While he was looking for a suitable marriage partner, he had a number of offers. There was a possible marriage with the Portuguese royal family, which fell through, one with the Navarrese royal family, and that fell through. But during July in 1200, John met Isabella of Angoulême, who was heiress to a strategic county in central Aquitaine. And that county stretched across the trade routes between, Poitou, uh, between Poitiers and Bordeaux, and it was a key crossroads. She was aged just 14, but there was a snag. She was already engaged to the powerful Poitavan noble, Hugh Lebrun, 
Lord of Lusignan and Count of La Marche. But John didn't care and went ahead and married her in August 1200 without compensating Hugh, which is a bit of an error. The Lusignan family were quite troublesome and had caused problems both for Richard I and for Henry II, and some sort of compensation would have been perhaps been politic. So consequently what happens, Lusignan decides to rebel openly against John. John, not too bothered, orders his officials to confiscate the county of La Marche without the judgment of his court. This arbitrary act led Lusignan to appeal directly to Philip II of France as his overlord. And he could do this now because John had recently accepted Henry, uh, Philip II as his overlord of France. And Philip II, who wasn't particularly at this time wanting to intervene, was forced to intervene at this, at this juncture because of the appeal. And we have some sort of flavour of the, of the marriage itself and the coronation, John's second coronation, which took place on the 8th of October 1200. An entry on the Liberate rolls for that year records that the king, the Liberate, to the Lord Treasurer and to the Chambers of the Exchequer. Liberate to the Treasurer, our Treasurer, for 25 shillings, to Eustace the Chaplain and Ambrose our Clerks, for singing the Christos Vincit at our second coronation, and at the anointing and coronation of Isabella our Queen at Westminster. So what happened afterwards? In April 1202, Philip decides against John and declares him a contumacious vassal. His fiefs of Aquitaine, Poitou, and Anjou are confiscated, but not Normandy. However, Philip attacks Normandy, which is a little dodgy to say the very least. What happens is he, just, he realizes and then later on declares Normandy forfeited as well to justify his claims and his attacks on the actual Norman uh, duchy. So over the course of the summer of 1202, there's lots of fighting. John, after the lightning campaign, comes down to Mirabeau, breaks the siege, captures Arthur of Brittany at the battle on the 1st of August 1202. John has the upper hand, but he throws it away. After the battle, he takes Arthur into his direct custody, ignoring the advice and thus offending William de Roche, a key Norman baron who was steward of Normandy, and that would have repercussions two years' time. But then he commits his next and most important error, perhaps of all. He has Arthur murdered. No one knows exactly sure when or where, but was shortly afterwards. This single act alienated much of the Breton nobility, who are now motivated to go to war and carry on fighting against John whatever the cost, and many of the normal nobility themselves were quite shocked and horrified by this one act. In England, it, it seems to go rather quietly and there doesn't be much, no, no one seems to really care, care too much. But in Normandy and in France, they do. It's an important act. And here we have an entry for, for the time of the fighting in France, a letter patent concerning the mercenary captain Martin Aguilar, uh, dated 20th November 1203. And this entry refers to him as his beloved and well-beloved servant, and the whole text comes out basically indicating how the, the amount of support he receives from, from Martin and how much he values that support. And there's another letter, a couple, another membrane beforehand, which to one of the leading Norman barons is the exact opposite, and is actually quite offensive, and you can see why he might later have rebelled against John. So, Normandy lost. John's now fighting a war on two fronts. The Bretons are attacking Anjou, while Philip assaults eastern Normandy. Treachery is rife amongst his supporters, and they offer little resistance and switch allegiance to Philip. He offended his remaining loyal Norman barons, relying ever more on mercenary captains, whose brutality and rapacity alarmed them. 
On the 5th of December, 1203, John flees to England with the treasury. Three months later, in March 1204, Chateau falls after a very long siege. And then, coup de grace, on the 24th of June, 1204, Rouen surrenders. Normandy has been lost. This next image comes from the, from the, the Liberati Rolls once more. And it gives an idea of the fallout generated by the collapse of the Angevin rule in Normandy. And this, and this one entry is actually quite typical. It authorises the payment for some carts to convey the Norman administrative archives that have been stored in Caen, which had been spirited out of the duchy by the clerk Peter de Leon from Shoreham to London. So what are the consequences of the loss of the, of the duchy? Firstly, there's an incredible sense of shock. Equivalent are perhaps the fall of Jerusalem in 1187, or a more modern equivalent perhaps is the fall of Singapore in 1942. It's difficult to overstate the sense of shock at that time people felt that the collapse in such a short time of an, of an institution of an alliance which has been going for over 150 years by this date. John never accepted the loss of Normandy. His first priority for the rest of his reign was his recapture. His future conduct was defined by his one driving ambition. Finding ready cash to fund this enterprise was key, and the treachery of his Norman barons led to similar mistrust of his English baronage. And those barons with cross-channel estates were forced to decide where their allegiances lay, the point of no return. So, how did John go about beginning raising the funds for his reconquest of the duchy? Firstly, he stopped selling privileges. These have been sold for the crown for many years for short-term profits sometimes being freely granted to favoured nobles and officials. Over time, however, these grants reduced the revenues and profits of the crown. So John ended this practice to maximise his resources. Many, many nobles and officials have received generous repayment terms for the debts they owed the crown. Unfortunately for them, for them, those they agreed with John were often harsh and led many into further debt. John ruthlessly exploited his feudal rights in an effort to raise cash. Release payable by heirs to enter into their inheritance were raised to crippling levels, while the custody of wards and heiresses were sold at exorbitant rates. John sometimes accepted money from litigants to get justice, but he reneged on the agreement. William de Mowbray, for example, offered the king 2,000 marks for justice in his case against William de Stuteville. John happily accepted the money, but still allowed his court to give judgment against Mowbray. John imposed many heavy fines for inheritance and grants, again as, a, as an effort to try and raise money for his campaign, his, his planned campaigns. Induced customs duties. He issued increasing demands for scutage payments, which are payments made to those by knights for those who are unable to do military service. And finally, pillages, which are taxes imposed upon um, his royal estates, boroughs, and cities, which are quite heavy, very increasing in frequency, and without any consent whatsoever. This entry on the fine rolls gives an example of John's attempt to control his nobles using debt. And there are many examples of this in the, in the, the public records. Now this, this, this image comes from a fine roll from 1215 to 1216. It records an earlier fine of 7,000 marks, or £4,666, made by John de Lacey for his inheritance in 1211. The average perennial income was only about £200 a year, so debts of this size were far off and outside the baron's ability to pay. This put them in John's power and made them dependent upon his goodwill to avoid forfeiture of their estates. England's barons could be in no doubt, however, what would happen if they did default. The Earldom of Leicester was impounded in 1207 when its holder defaulted on his debt repayments. Perhaps inevitably, people did try to avoid paying. And this entry here uh, relates to an imposition of a tax called the 13th, which was issued, in, which was ordered in 1207. It was a very unpopular tax, 
and met with lots of opposition and subterfuge. People tried to hide their chattels in monasteries, and royal officers carried out raids in search of them. This entry in the close war of 1207 recalls the impounding of Swanhead Abbey's building fund because the Crown thought it was suspected profits and suspect property. John's unpopularity also extended to the church. In 1205, Archbishop Hubert Water of Canterbury dies. John wanted his own candidate, John de Grey, the recently installed Bishop of Norwich, elected in his stead. The monks of Christchurch, however, chose to elect their own sub-prior, Reginald, in his place. Both sides decided to appeal to Rome. The Pope, however, chooses someone else. Stephen Langton, a renowned lecturer at the University of Paris. John was furious and expels Canterbury's monks and prevents Langton, Langton's installation as Archbishop by stop, stopping him landing in England. For this act, John was excommunicated and the realm was put under an interdict, which was like a general strike of the clergy who would not perform any ecclesiastical office apart from the baptism of infants and the confession of dying. When the interdict was first pronounced, John was furious and viewed it as a paper declaration of war against him. But his attitude later changed, and to borrow a modern catchphrase, am I bothered? As he confiscated the clerical properties and all its profits from those clerics who enforced the interdict and fled abroad. For six years as a stalemate, but John eventually decided to make his peace with the Pope, and he makes England a feudal fief of the papacy. This is a political masterstroke, since John would need the Pope's support in the forthcoming war with France as well as against his recalcitrant barons. Now, the National Archives actually holds an old copy of that charter of submission to the Pope on the charter rolls. The actual roll was actually at the back of the room, you can view later. Unfortunately, the document was heavily damaged in the 19th century, but you can still read its terms. And I, and I quote, We deserve to humble ourselves for him who humbled himself for us, even until death, and inspired by the grace of the Holy Spirit, not induced by force or compelled by fear, but of our own free will, free and spontaneous will, and by the common counsel of our barons, we offer and freely yield to God and his holy apostles Peter and Paul, and to the holy Roman Catholic Church, our mother, and to Lord Pope Innocent and his successors, the whole kingdom of England, for mission of our sins. John's submission was originally seen by contemporaries as a humiliation, but it quickly bore him fruit. The king could rely on the full support of the papacy and the full weight of the Western Church in both his struggle with the barons and, and any plans, subsequent plans to recover Normandy. And these benefits can be seen in this paper bull of October 1213, which ordered the prelates and nobles of Ireland to continue offering their fealty to John. Over the course of the decade following the loss of Normandy, England's baronage became increasingly unhappy and discontented. Some of the grievances can be traced back to the policies of his predecessors. Over the second half of the 12th century, there was a rapid growth in the jurisdiction of the royal courts at the expense of those of the barons. Some reforms were welcomed by the baronage, but not others. The nature of the baronage changed. Many barons and knights could trace their ancestry back to Normandy, and in the aftermath of the Norman conquest, they become a military elite with some governmental and judicial responsibilities. By the late 12th century, however, judicial power was being eroded, while military service was gradually being replaced by monetary payments in lieu. The Crown increasingly used professional administrators in both central and local government, which meant that only a small number of barons had necessary skills to, fill, to fulfill these administrative duties. Consequently, the feudal relationship between the Crown and barons was turning into a more financial one. There's also a growing idea that the realm should be governed by judgment and by counsel and not merely at the king's will or by the king's will. Another source of baronial content, which had long-term uh, antecedents, were the royal forests. Earlier Plantagenet kings had significantly extended the limits of the royal forests. And the Angevin exploitation of the forest laws, together with the sale of recently acquired areas, led to a fruitful 
extremely unpopular source of revenue. And the image you see on the screen is King John out hunting with his dogs, and obviously it looks like he was enjoying himself. Complementing the long-term grievances, there was a myriad of short-term ones. John's personal involvement in government reduced the need for large meetings of magnets. Counsel could be provided by a small group of hand-picked advisors. They felt they were being shut out. Given John's Z for money, the lands available for patronage were limited. What patronage John bestowed was aimed towards his officials and foreign mercenary captains, a circumstance that may antagonized the barons still further. John had the power to delay and frustrate litigants. For example, John ordered that a case be dismissed in 1207 because the king did not wish that the plea to be held. John's reason was that he accepted £1,000 and 15, 15 porphyries from one of the litigants to quash the action that the suit should stand over. The unpopularity of military service abroad led to a widespread refusal to serve in the proposed Poitavan expeditions of 1212 and 1213. John's distrust of his baronage led him to demand hostages from some of the leading malcontents. This is not just a normal security measure, however, and this, and this can be seen in an event that occurred in July 1212. 28 Welsh chieftains had risen in rebellion, an act that led John to order the hanging of their sons, who had earlier been surrendered as hostages. There was no idle threat. There are lots of stories about John's lust for the wives of his, of his barons and their daughters. He certainly had lots of mistresses and lots of illegitimate children. Some stories, such as that he tried to seduce the wife of Eustace de Vesey, whose virtue was only saved by the timely appearance of a chambermaid, may perhaps be invented after the fact to explain why the barons took up um, arms against him. But there may be some substance in the, in, the, in the stories themselves. And as we've already seen, the use of indebtedness gave the king power to cripple vassals at will. So let's quickly look at the experiences of two nobles who did fall out with John. The first of these is William Marshall, who I've nicknamed the survivor. He was Earl of Pembroke and Lord of Leinster. In 1204-5, he made an oath of loyalty to Philip II of France to keep the Norman estates that he held. And this act was what probably set John off against him. Later in 1206, John ordered a tax on his Irish estates. But the Marshal kept his, kept his nerve and gradually turned to all favour between 1210 and 1212. By 1214 and 15, he was viewed as a loyal supporter of John, and in 1215 and 16, fought loyally with John against the barons. His reputation for loyalty led him eventually to become regent of England in 1216 to 1219 when he died. That was a success story. There were some victims. William de Breos was a marshal baron with lands in Limerick and Sussex, and the image you can see there is Bramber Castle, which is what's left of one of his, his main holdings in Sussex. 1206, he falls out with John, and again, um, John encourages his Irish barons to attack his properties. His offices are confiscated. In March 1208, he demands William's sons as hostages for good behaviour. Matilda, his wife, refuses, and John orders the arrest. She made some inadvertent comments about um, the death of Arthur, which um, was perhaps the most political thing to do in the circumstances. So the family fled to Ireland. April 2008, or 1208, John sends his army into Breos's lands to confiscate it and demands a thousand marks from Breos to cover the cost of the expedition. William offers 40,000 marks a little bit later that year to get the king's goodwill. John refuses as long as Matilda, William's wife, is at liberty. Spring 1210, John sends an army to Ireland to crush him. William flees to, Paris, to Wales and to Paris, but his family are captured and imprisoned probably at Windsor Castle. Popular reports suggest that they died of starvation in the dungeons. And Briose himself, after, he's, after he fled to Paris, he died as an exile on September 1211, a broken man. So let us look at the events leading up to the events at Runnymede. In May 1214, 
John ordered a repayment, a payment of scutage for those who refused to serve with him in Poitou, and then again met with widespread refusal. But he still went ahead with his campaign. His plan was a pincer movement. Allies under the leadership of the Holy Roman Emperor Otto IV would attack Philip in the north, while John would lead an army from Poitou into his former dominions. On the 27th of July 1214, a crucial battle was fought at Beauvais, near the modern-day uh, Belgian border. Unfortunately for John, the Allied army was crushed. His plans were in tatters, and he withdrew his forces from Poitou and returned to England. The dismal ending of John's continental plans weakened him politically, allowing the floodgates that had stemmed perennial discontent to open. Peter de Roche, a foreign-born justicia, had ruled England during John's absence abroad and displayed the worst features of Angevin despotism. There were many complaints about him when facing John when he got back. By, 12, by January 1215, the dissidents were demanding a world charter of liberties from the crown. On the 5th of May 1215, getting no further, the barons formally renounced the fealty and elected Robert Fitzwater, John's long-term enemy, as their leader with the title Marshal the Host of God and the Holy Church which also gives almost a crusade feeling to the actual rebellion. The rebellion itself was mainly based in the north of the country, but not exclusively so, and its leaders were Robert Fitzwater and Eustace de Vesey, the one whose wife has almost lost a virtue to John. Civil war was looming, but it was averted at the last moment by Langton's negotiations, which culminated at Runnymede. The next slide shows you two images of Runnymede. The first is um, the, the American Bar Association's memorial, Commander Carter, raising its reputation as a symbol of freedom under the law. And the right-hand side, the photograph of the field itself, on the, between Windsor and Egham, looking down from Cooper's Hill. So, what actually took place at Runnymede? On the 10th of June, 1215, King John met with the perennial leaders near Windsor, where he committed himself to a draft schedule called the Articles of the Barons. Five days later, on the 15th of June, he agreed to the general demands at Runnymede near Windsor. The exact wording takes another four days to resolve. The popular view is of John Sonny Magna Carta under watchful eyes of the United Baronage. But it was not sealed at Runnymede, nor is it just one copy of Magna Carta. There are copies made for each county and palatinate, and are sent to the sheriffs. Some are also sent to uh, Episcopal dioceses as well. There are a total of 63 clauses in the 1215 Magna Carta, and this part of the talk I'm talking about a few of the more famous ones. Firstly, clause two. If any of our earls holding and chief of us die, and his heir is of full age, he shall have his inheritance of a hundred pounds. This is a direct answer to John's attempts to extort a substantial reliefs, exorbitant reliefs out of his barons. Clause six. Heir should be given marriage with disparagement. John had sometimes given heiresses in marriage to his mercenary captains, a practice which wasn't very popular with the English baronage, who wanted them for themselves. Clause 14. The king was to ob obtain common counsel of the realm for the assessment of an aid or scutage, something which had not been done before. And the next two, clause 39. No free man should be taken except by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land, and the most famous of them all, clause 40. To no one will we sell, to no one will we deny or delay right or justice. National Archives has a copy of a later issue, the 1225 reissue, in the Dutch Lancaster material, and this is an image of what it looks like. It is, in many respects, the same as the 1215, but there are a few changes. A few clauses were dropped out in the later reissue. So how would they enforce Magna Carta, or how did they plan to enforce Magna Carta? Firstly, there's a security clause, number 61. 
A council of 25 barons were to use all their might to maintain and enforce the charter. If the king, or in his absence, the justicia, did not remedy any complaint within the 40 days, the 25 would call out the community of the whole land to seize his castles and lands to enforce compliance. This is an extremely radical development. And to back it up, in Call 63, everyone was to swear an oath to observe the terms of Magna Carta and its terms. That they wish to actually enforce Magna Carta, at least for a little while, can be seen in a document stored here at National Archives, amongst the Chancery Miscellanea, and it records an agreement between King John, the Earl Marshal, and others to allow the barons to hold London as security until the oaths for the observance of Magna Carta are administered. This is the popular image of, of um, Magna Carta at Runnymede, the agreement of Runnymede, the king surrounded by his barons on all sides being forced and compelled to actually sign over and agree to their demands. But what's myth and what's reality? Firstly, it's a failed peace treaty. Both sides quickly broke it. Many clauses dealt with minor or specific issues. For example, one of the clauses, number 33, ordered the removal of fish weirs from the River Thames and the Medway. The later issues benefited the Crown by removing some of the more onerous and restrictive clauses. The vagueness of wording, such as ought, allowed differences in interpretation. Another clause, clause 48, mentioned the word evil. There was no definition of what evil meant. But this vagueness was a strength. It allowed later generations to give equalities it was not intended at the time, and it enshrined the underlying principle that the Crown was not above the law. So, as we have seen, both sides quickly ignored the Charter, and the country ineligibly slid into civil war. In the autumn of 1215, both sides were preparing to resume fighting, but the bishops continued to try mediation and attempt to avert forthcoming war. In September 1215, John recruited a large Flemish mercenary army, but this was wrecked on the Suffolk coast during a heavy autumn gale. The barons quickly took advantage of a setback by marching on Rochester Castle. Held by Reginald Cornhill, a previously loyal agent of the Crown, the castle's gates were opened without a fight. John was incandescent with rage and quickly laid siege to the castle. After strenuous efforts, the castle was retaken, and John ordered the hanging of one of the garrison who had formerly served his own personal household. The barons were in a desperate plight at this stage. Desperate for help, they sent off a delegation to Paris to offer the throne to Louis, Philip's son, Prince Louis. Louis was eager, but Philip was rather lukewarm, who had been breaking the truce with John and had brought down the full wrath of the papacy. Some knights were dispatched in November from, from France, but Louis delayed his arrival. During the winter, John campaigned successfully in the north and effectively knocked out the heart of resistance everywhere except in London. But things did not stay that way. Louis was preparing to invade. In April 1216, John, in an attempt to prevent this, organised and prepared the naval force to repel the invasion fleet. But again, a gale gets in the way and wrecks his fleet, sinks many of the ships and disperses the rest, allowing Louis unopposed uh, landing at Pedwell Bay near Ramsgate in Kent. Many of those who had recently submitted to John rose in rebellion once more. By the end of the summer, 1216, roughly 66% of all of the barons were now in rebellion against John. We can get some sense of the of the war of the campaigns and the and the sieges that took place amongst the proper records. Here is a letter close dated the 14th of October 1215, which shows how determined John was to recover Rochester Castle. It states that night and day all the smiths of your city are to work on making pickaxes, and there are subsequent letters concerning the making of hauberks and boots, all which are again to be sent to him at Rochester for use in the in the siege. Here we have another letter close this time ordering the supply of 40 bacon pigs. I'll explain why they wanted 40 bacon pigs. Tunnels have been dug under the corner, one of the corner towers 
of Rochester Castle and had been shored up with timbers. The tunnel itself was filled up with combustibles, and this letter orders the Justicia to send those 40 pigs to Rochester, the fat from which will be used in the firing of those timbers and the combustibles. And an actor led directly to the tower's collapse and the castle surrender. So you can actually see the operation ongoing, taking place in the actual records itself. Over the winter of 1215-16, it was rather grim up north. Contemporary chroniclers recalled with horror the scale and ferocity of John's campaign in northern counties during, the, the, during that winter. The Barnwell Chronicler notes that on Christmas Day, it was spent at Nottingham, but not in the usual fashion, but as one on the warpath. Detachments of John's forces scoured the countryside, looking for his enemies and pillaging their lands. Some of the campaign's severity can be still felt in the public records, and occasionally there is evidence of a rough kind of justice being meted out to those soldiers who were found guilty of committing a certain excessive act. A defendant in an appeal of felony, brought during the Yorkshire air of 1218, recounts that he had stolen a cow from a specified churchyard. His punishment had been swift, although severe. One of his hands had been cut off on the orders of the marshal of the army. And the reason for his mentioning this fact was being accused of attacking someone with a bow and arrow. So it was a bit difficult with one hand. And that's the actual highlighted entry itself, the actual wording. Okay, the end game. A victim unceasing word. In the autumn of 1216, John was suffering from suspected dysentery, which he contracted at King's Lynn, but he continued to campaign in East Anglia. In October 1216, while he was on the campaign, he lost his baggage and treasure train in the wash. On the 18th of October 1216, John died at Newark. His body was then interred in Worcester Cathedral, and he succeeded as king by his infant son, Henry III. So what of John's reputation? We have seen examples of his angry temperament. We have seen his tyrannical conduct, for example, the arbitrary seizing of Lusignan's county of La Marche. His vindictiveness, his treatment of the Breo's family, stands out. His untrustworthiness, during Richard's imprisonment in, in Austria, he plotted with Philip II to try and get the throne. His reputation for military incompetence, Normandy 1203, speaks volumes. His immorality, his excommunication, exploitation of church property, and his extortion, the feudal taxation that he used and raised to fund his policy of recovering Normandy. But is John all that bad? Are there any redeeming features? Well, there is another side. Firstly, he never actually lost a battle he fought in, and he was very skilled in siegecraft. For example, the breaking of siege of Mirabeau and the siege of Rochester shows he does actually have some skill. This also is supported by his quick recovery of the Channel Islands within two years of their loss after the end of Normandy in 1204. He was a shrewd operator. Making England an apostolic thief was a masterstroke that ensured the entire moral weight of the church was thrown behind him and his policies. He was a strategist of great ability. He built the necessary alliances over a period of years to allow the 1214 campaign to proceed, which was a long and successful process which outmaneuvered the combination of the rebel English barons and, the, and their French allies. It came incredibly close to success in 1214, and the decisions and bad luck of others that ultimately led to his defeat, the Allied defeat at Bovine. Dispensed with justice, we have seen John has managed to deny justice to individuals, but usually and rarely he used a course directly against those who had fallen out of favour with him. John was often happy to, to judge the most ordinary of cases. He rarely intervened himself, unless they were relevant to him. He widened access to his courts by expanding the number of writs available to prospective litigants. And although it had a financial benefit, it also benefited the, the general populace, and including the baronage. John Kemp has to be referred to as one of the founders of the Royal Navy. Before his reign, the Crown had only a small number of vessels in its service. If the Crown needed a fleet to fight or to transport his armies across the seas, it would rely upon the services of the vessels owned by the St. Ports, which owned 57 vessels for 15 days a year 
the service of, or he could commandeer merchant vessels. John was the first king, however, to invest in a fleet of his own. Between 1209 and 1212, the crown ordered the building of 20 new galleys and 34 other vessels. John also authorised the construction of a new mole at Portsmouth and sheds for stock storing tackle during the winter month. And this entry in front of us is an account rendered by Reginald of Cornhill of Rochester Castle fame for £368 spent on the galleys at London, which were built at London in the, in the year 1206-1207. John was also a great administrator who has been credited with the creation of the key public series of, series of public records near the beginning of his reign. For example, the Charter, Patent and Closure Rolls. Given the difficulties of creating and maintaining a growing navy, administrative rethinking was required. One official, William de Rotham, was given overriding responsibility for all maritime matters. This was an administrative post he never went to sea. Adaptation and inventiveness was at the heart of his administration, and existing offices were developed to new purposes. John's reign saw the clear emergence of a conscious bureaucracy, punctilious about its methods and record-keeping. Apart from providing himself with a general oversight of administration, he was also personally concerned with his minutiae, and spent each day dealing with routine and mundane business, which lesser kings perhaps would have left to others. So was John a great prince or monster depravity? His ambition was not wanton, but he did commit to wanton acts in trying to achieve it. He was cheated of his inheritance, but was ruthlessly determined to recover it. He was an able ruler, but he didn't know when he was squeezing too hard. He was an ingenious administrator, but his expedience sometimes went before policy. He was a notable judge, but chicanery went along with justice. He was a clever strategist, but lacked boldness. His greatest enemy was his own impatience. He was a man with a complex and twisted personality, whose own flaws prevented him from reaching his potential for greatness. And he had the mental abilities of a great king, but inclinations of a petty tyrant. If you're interested in reading or learning any more or reading any more about John, there are a few references I would recommend. Steve Church's Convent's volume on King John, New Interpretations, is it worth a read? Magna Carta, the, the biggest and perhaps the most important study of it, is J.C. Holt's, um, which was republished in Cambridge University Press in 1992. His earlier work on the Northerners, which again was republished in 1992. More recently, Ralph, Ralph Turner from the uh, University of Tallahassee wrote a study of King John. And a slightly older biography, but still very useful, is King, is, um, King John by Warren. Thank you very much. This event was recorded live on May the 15th, 2007 at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by Adrian Jobson. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved. <laughs>